0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and li'ilu nishmas Pesach ben Benyamin Moshe, Paul Krasnowski, a beautiful soul, beloved by all who knew him, who passed away over Shabbos, may his soul be elevated in heaven. We have arrived at the final installment on the book of Leviticus. We are saying our bittersweet goodbye to the book of Vayikra. And the truth is, we got to spend more time here this year than previous years. As you know, this year, 2022, 5782 in our calendar is a leap year, meaning we have an extra month of Adar. And therefore, we don't have what we typically have most years, and that is doubled Parshios, because the Torah has to be divisible or malleable enough to be able to accommodate a year with an extra month, and therefore most years, several parshios are doubled up together. And This year, Behar and Behukosai, so this week and and last week, are separated. And in fact, we only have one double partia this year in the diaspora, and that's at the end of the book of Numbers, at the end of Bamidbar, Matos, and Mase are combined. If you are so fortunate as to live in the land of Israel, this year there are no double parshios, And that's because the final day of Passover of Pesach in the diaspora was on Shabbos. In Israel, that day was a regular, a regular day, meaning in Israel, they read the Parsha in the United States or in the diaspora. We were still observing Pesach. So we read something related to Pesach. So we're a week behind. We're going to sync up with our brethren in the Holy Land at the end of the book of Numbers. And we're here to celebrate the completion of the book of Vayikra with a very special edition of the Parsha podcast. I'm fortunate to be in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. The website is torchweb.org. The email address is rabbiwalbe at gmail.com. Now, I must say that I actually had a devilish plan for this week's Parsha podcast. But thank God, my better judgment won, and I tabled my plans. Are you curious to hear what those plans were? Do you want to know what my cunning, scheming plans were before I changed the course? This was the plan. There's an amazing Arachayim, the commentary of Arachayim, the classic commentary, on the first verse of our parsha, and he offers, listen to this. He offers around 50 different interpretations on one verse. The verse, If you go in the ways of God and you observe his mitzvot, etc., in one verse, he offers a comprehensive, basically it's a whole a whole course, a crash course in Jewish philosophy, in Torah, and mitzvot, and he weaves it all in to this very short verse. Incredible work of scholarship, an absolute masterpiece, a magisterial piece. I have the like the teacher's edition of the Torah, and it has all the all the various commentators all weaved into one volume in Hebrew. And this takes up pages upon pages in tiny letters. It's absolutely massive. In the new edition that I have, they actually number the interpretations of the Aruchim on this verse, and they only get up to. 42 different interpretations, but I will tell you that I read the whole thing and the true number of interpretations that he reads into this verse is closer to 50. And these are not like one-liners. Each one is very substantial and it's a magnificent piece. And I I think, you know, as I was reading, I was thinking that we could really spend a whole year just studying this one comment of the Arachaim on one verse, the first verse of our Parsha. We could really like spend a week on each one of his interpretations on one verse. So here was my devilish plan. I was going to say, I was going to say that, you know, we have this running joke at the end of the podcast. When it gets, you know, towards the end of the podcast, it's the exquisite inside territory. And I have this line that I like to say, well, no one's listening anyhow. So I could say things. I could go rogue. I stopped stop listening way earlier. And then whenever I make that joke, I get some texts. I get some emails. RabbiWolby Oh, Rabbi Woba actually listened all the way to the end. I caught you. See, so here was my plan. This was the sinister plan. I was going to dedicate this week's Parsha podcast to this Araheim comment. And I was going to read and explain and delve into the whole piece. And not just to cherry pick, you know, a few of the interpretations here and there. But to go through every single one of them thoroughly. And dare the listeners, dare you to listen all the way to the end. And I I estimated it would take, you know, around five to seven hours to cover it all. And then I would finally be able to say when we got to the exquisite insight that I'm positive. I'm certain there's definitely no one still listening. All of y'all have checked out. That was my plan. That was the devilish, sneaky, nefarious plan. But thank God I came to my senses and I decided to spare you and frankly to spare me from that episode, even though it would be incredible, but it's too much in in one and I'm not giving you a loyalty test. And the truth is, with the help of the Almighty and thanks to your astute attentiveness, our podcasts actually have a very high retention rate. More than 90% of our listeners stick around for more than 75% of every episode. In the in the industry, this is called impactful place. So more than 90% of the listeners actually listen to more than three-quarters of a given episode. And that's astonishingly high. So thank you so much. I appreciate your listenership, listening all the way to the end. Maybe I'm going to have to retire this joke that no one's listening. Or maybe I'll keep it. Which will it be? You'll have to stick around to the end. To find out. So we're not going to cover this Arachim, but I would advise you if you have the ability to read it in Hebrew. There's also, it was also translated, it was published in English by Art Scroll. They did a translation, an excellent, superb translation of the Arachim. If you have some time to read it, even if you don't read the whole thing, it's really it's amazing. and it's really amazing to see how much richness and how much layering and how many facets there are, and how much we could read into just one verse. You know, it's amazing. We always say the Torah is infinite. Torah is the mind of God. It's the will of God. And therefore, like God, it too is infinite. And here we see an example of what that looks like. It's only one verse. You know, it's a couple of words. And we can legitimately see so much nuance and so many angles and so many dimensions into this. And one commentary can offer 50 interpretations. We're not going to do that, but if you have time, I would encourage you to read it. So our parsha begins that same verse that we mentioned. Lechu, if you go in my decrees and my statutes, if you follow the ways of God, and if you guard, if you observe my mitzvos, o someone, you shall do them. This is the first verse of our parsha. And there is an iconic Rashi, an amazing Rashi, that is going to be the subject of this podcast. So Rashi asks a question: What does it mean to walk in God's decrees? In kosai, if in my decrees telechu, you shall walk. What does that mean? So Rashi says, well, you may think it's referring to the observance of the mitzvot, to walk with the decrees of God, which means to obey, to adhere. To the decrees of God. But it can't be that, because the very next words of the verse, they say, say moru," and you shall observe my mitzvos, and you shall do them. So the verse already explicitly addresses observance of the mitzvos. So if observance of the mitzvos is already featured at the end of the verse, what does it mean? In b'chukosay it must refer to something else. It must not be referring to observance of the mitzvot. So Rashi tells us, quoting a midrash, what does it mean, what does it mean that you should walk in God's decrees? It means, you should toil in Torah. There's something else besides for the observance of the mitzvot, and that is to toil in Torah. That is what is meant Tells us, Rashi, by the words, Kosai telechu, in my decrees, you shall walk. This is going to be the subject of today's podcast. Now, I must, I must say, if you had the great privilege of spending time in yeshiva, you've probably heard this Rashi, I don't know, a million times. And the reason is because it's such an iconic Rashi, it's such a famous comment in Rashi, that every speech in the yeshiva, Every speech during this week is going on, going off on this Rashi, waxing on this Rashi. So oddly, although the best experience a youth can have to expand their mind, to expand their soul, the best experience is to spend some time in yeshiva. I feel like with respect to understanding this Rashi, you are a bit disadvantaged because If you've been to yeshiva and you've heard this iconic Rashi so many times, and certainly if you heard it before you were old enough to appreciate what Rashi is telling us, it kind of loses its mystique. It becomes a cliche. It becomes a bland platitude bereft of meaning. You know, I got an email this week from a scholar friend of mine. He was writing an article on this parsha, and he wanted my feedback. And he wrote, he says, listen, I'm, I'm gonna publish this in a local publication and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And this is, this is an actual quote from his email. I decided to have some fun and go a bit beyond the classic Bichu Kosai amelus bat Torah rhetoric. Basically he's saying like, like beyond what everyone always talks about in this parish. Everyone always talks about Bichu like you should walk in my decrees. And what does it mean? It means you should be toiling in Torah. I'm going beyond the classic rhetoric. Of this Rashi, this amazing Rashi, again, if you've heard it a million times, if you've had the great fortune of spending time in Yeshiva, it does become a little bit old and tired. So ironically, if you haven't had the privilege to spend time in Yeshiva, you're probably better positioned to appreciate this incredible Rashi, this incredible idea. But regardless, let's shatter the childish notions about this Rashi. So our begins with an if-then statement, I-F-T-T-T. If you walk in the decrees of God, which Rashi tells us it means if you toil in Torah, then all manner of good things will happen to you. You'll have your rain in its time. You'll have bountiful crops and fruits. You'll have security, satiation, peace in the land. You won't have any enemies. The enemies that you do have, you'll pursue them. You'll crush them. There won't be wild animals. There won't be war. You'll be fruitful and multiply. God will be close to you. He will maintain his covenant with you. You're going to have such abundance. You're about to eat the old fruit. God will dwell amongst you. He won't reject you. Things will be amazing. And those are the first 13 verses of our Parsha. If, then... And then in verse 14, it has the other if-then statement. But if you reject God, and you reject his Torah and his mitzvot, and it continues for dozens of spine-chilling verses to describe the terrible things that will befall us. This is known as the admonishment. This is the part of Torah where God, God kind of lays out the options that we have, the binary options that we have. Choose which path you want, and these are going to be the consequences. Now, if you look at Rashi to verse 14, we find we find the converse, or, or is it the inverse? The inverse, the converse, the opposite of the first Rashi. The verse tells us, <inaudible> if you don't listen to God, <inaudible> you don't do the mitzvot. And Rashi asks the same question. What does it mean you don't listen to God? He explains, you are not toiling in Torah. That's what it means. Because it cannot mean that you don't listen to God. That It cannot mean that that's referring to lack of observance of the mitzvot because that already says later on in the verse. The verse says if you don't listen to God and you don't observe the mitzvot. So what does it mean that you don't listen to God? It cannot be referring to lack of observance of the mitzvot because that's already addressed explicitly at the end of the verse. So what does it mean to not listen to God? It means to not toil in Torah. So we're told here something very fascinating and quite eye-opening. Both the amazing blessings and the terrible curses of our Parsha, they all hinge on toil in Torah. If you do toil in Torah, then all manner of blessing will be bestowed upon you. If you do not toil in Torah, then all manner of suffering will befall you. The amazing blessings and the terrifying curses all depend on this quality, toil in Torah. So of course, this should inspire us to understand what exactly this means. What is it? What does it mean to toil in Torah? Why is it so pivotal? Why is it the determining factor of everything? And finally, if this is so crucial, how do we do it? I'm ready. I want to sign up. I'm committed. What does it take? What do I need to do to be included in the class of people that are toiling in Torah? So let's begin. What we will discover is something really interesting, really deep, ideas that I think will dovetail into some of the big ideas that we have discussed at length in the Parsha podcast. You know, just last week, we spent time talking about the unlimited potential that we all have. This, I think, will serve as a fitting follow-up to what we talked about last week. But I must attest, before we begin, that I cannot take credit for this brilliance. I saw what I'm about to share with you in several essays from my grandfather, of Memory's memories, vast writings. So let's begin. Rashi tells us, that everything, all these blessings and all these curses, it all hinges on toiling in Torah. The Midrash adds another wrinkle. The Midrash says, If you walk with God's decrees, and the Midrash explains, Malamidus teaches us, That God desires, he covets, that Israel should toil in Torah. This is not simply a command to toil in Torah. This is something that God covets. This indicates that really everything that God wants out of his creations is wrapped up into this, into toil of Torah. Not just study of Torah, not just Torah learning, but Torah toil. Similarly, the Talmud tells us in the book of Avodah page 5a, the word "im," which means "if," if you walk in God's decrees, the word "if" "im" is a term of tachanunim, of begging, of pleading. This is what God is desirous of. This is what He covets, and He's pleading with us to do it. And of course, we're mature enough, we're experienced enough to know. We can't do anything for God and it's all really for us. God has no desires or needs. What our sages are revealing to us is that this idea of toil in Torah, whatever it means, in this idea, we can find the essence of what God is trying to get to us, what he's trying to convey to us, what, what it all boils down to. It all crystallizes to toil in Torah. That is our mission. What is it? What is it? Why is it our mission? And how do we do it? So here's the secret. I'll tell you the secret, and then we will explain exactly how it works, exactly how it impacts a person. Toil in Torah, that is the way to unlock the unlimited human potential that we all have. And my grandfather, Blessed Memory, he explained this with an analogy. It's like you have a seed, a seed of a tree. A seed contains all the potential for the tree, but the seed has yet to sprout. When has a tree actualized its potential? Only when it's fully grown it's got roots and branches and leaves and fruits, and it's delivering new fruits year after year for centuries, that's when the tree achieves its potential. And man is like a seed. It arrives to this earth as a seed. It has unlimited potential, but all that potential is still locked up. It hasn't been unlocked. It hasn't been developed. All the components of greatness are present. But in order for it to be actualized, you you have to deepen those roots, you have to sprout those branches, those trees, and those fruits, and only then will the potential be actualized. And of course, it happens slowly, just like a sapling. You don't drop the sapling into the ground, and tomorrow you have the whole tree. It, It takes time. Similarly with a person, there's a whole process. You have to discover yourself. You have to identify your potential. And you have to layer upon that the Almighty's guidance for greatness, namely Torah. And not just to study it superficially, not just to take a a cursory stroll in the paths of Torah, but specifically to toil in it. We're here to develop our potential. We have this seed and captured within it, in theory, is all that greatness. But we need to develop it. And the tool to develop it, of course, is Torah. And specifically, a kind of Torah engagement that's known as toil in Torah. And that's what Rashi is referring to when he says to toil in Torah. I like to think of this as like the old Sears Roebuck build-your-own-home-kits They send you all the materials and all the parts and all the pieces. And what do you have? You have a whole house. But it's all in theory. It's all in potential. You have to assemble it yourself. You have to put it all together yourself. We come here and we have something really special. But it's unassembled. And we need to assemble those parts together ourselves. When you get here, you are quite literally a self Assembly kit. And you need some tools. And what are those tools? It's Torah. And what part of Torah or what kind of Torah engagement? Specifically, the one referred to by our sages as toil in Torah. Now remember, we haven't quite defined it. We haven't explained how it works. But now we could see the critical role that it plays. Now, it makes sense to say that God covets it. He desires it. He is begging. He's pleading for it. This is the goal of creation. The goal of creation is that man and God can partner to make man. Not just the potential, the unplanted seed, the unassembled kit that we start off with, but the fully developed fully deployed tree with roots and branches and fruits that yield fruit forever and ever. We're here to make something amazing out of this kit, out of this seed, out of this human that we are stewards over. After creation was done in Genesis chapter 2, we read the famous verse, God blessed day seven. Because on that day, God rested from all his work. And the final words of this verse. Asher bara laasos. That God created laasos to do. What does that mean? God created laasos to do. That extra word, you know, the, the verse would make a lot more sense if you just say that God made the whole creation and he ceased to create on day seven. And on day seven, God rested from all his work that God created. Why does it add the extra word, lasos, to do? So the answer is, is that God created really everything in existence, but not really everything, almost everything. In the higher spheres, God created everything. In the lowest spheres, God created also everything. But in this world, and specifically in man, and man, when we say man, of course we say, we mean mankind. I just, I don't want to get those emails. Man, you're a chauvinist. No, we mean mankind. Humanity, it's a partnership. God created the world, lassos. He created the world to do, meaning... For us to finish what he started, for us to complete our portion of the deal, for us to assemble the kit that he delivered to us, for us to plant that seed, for us to complete and make and finalize what God started. And that's what the verse means. Yes, there are parts of creation that are totally done by God, and they're not dynamic, and there's no need to finish that. And those are the things that are above us spiritually and things that are below us spiritually. But humanity, the goal of it all, this really odd, strange chimera that's man, so to speak, a divine made chimera, shall we say, of course. This hybrid of, of a heavenly, angelic soul and a, and a really low earthly, beastly body and the capacity of free will and transformation, the dynamism of man. The objective is for man to do the work to finish it. God created this world, and specifically us, with the intention, with the goal, with the objective of us doing the work to finish what God started. This is like the example of circumcision. You know, the the human body is born, almost finished, almost finished. There's still just one little bit, you know, one, one little amendment, one slight improvement that we need to do. And that's why circumcision is really symbolic of, of all of Torah. It's a one mitzvah that, that represents everything because this is really kind of globally what humanity and thus creation is all about. For us to make that slight improvement, to fix it slightly, to improve it slightly, to assemble, to plant in the analogies that we, that we furnished above. How do we do it? How do we develop our potential? Well, of course, the answer is through Torah. They might gave us the instruction manual. He gave us the directions how to assemble it through this incredible gift and specifically by deploying it with toil, and by the way, this is just not speculation. This is explicitly in the Talmud. The Talmud tells us the book of Sanhedrin, page 99b, Adam l'amol yulad, man is created for amal, for toil. And the Talmud says it's the toil of the mouth, not of work. And it's the toil of Torah, not other things. The Talmud tells us explicitly that man was created with the need to add toil to it. That's the assembly of the kit. That's the planting of the seed. And the only kind of toil that actualizes man and completes man and achieves the objective of creation is the toil of Torah. An amazing idea we have over here. Man needs to come here to develop their potential. You know, it makes you wonder, what was wrong For the soul in heaven? Why does it need to come here to this crazy world to develop its potential? Why couldn't it do it there, above? Why does it have to come down here? So my grandfather quotes this amazing piece. This is a piece really from the Zohar, but it's quoted by the iconic book, Chef Schmeitzer, in the introduction. It's actually featured in my grandfather's work. He, He spends a lot of time on this particular citation. And it's oriented around a verse. The verse tells us in Proverbs chapter five, drink water from your cistern and dripping, sprouting water from your spring. You have a cistern, like a, like a, like a pit in which you place water. And then you have a spring which spouts water from its own, from itself. And the Chef Schmeitzer explains, That the soul in heaven is akin to a cistern. It doesn't have this flow. It is filled by others. But essentially, it's empty. So the soul in heaven has got all these amazing experiences. It's in this really idyllic existence. But it's a cistern, meaning that the water that's placed within it is placed by others. It has no water of its own. And when it descends to this world, to this pathetic world, this sinful world, this crazy chaotic world, only then does it have the potential to become a spring, a wellspring, to earn, so to speak, the water, to develop it from within. Life for the soul in heaven is wonderful. It's great. It has unrestricted access to the highest experiences imaginable and really ones that are also beyond imagination. But in heaven, the life of the soul is a different level of living. It is life that is bequeathed to it, that is bestowed upon it by others. And that's a lower level of living. And it has to come to this world. And here it has the potential to earn it on its own and to be transformed from a cistern into a wellspring. Of course, there's, you know, this incredible paradox that, you know, the soul is most vibrantly alive in heaven. It's very depressed as readers of my new book Upon a Ten-String Tarp know, it's very depressed to come to this world. But there is a major opportunity the soul has here that does not have there. Here, it has the capacity to achieve independent life not just that the water is placed within it by others, but it becomes a wellspring on its own. Dependent life, life that does not have vitality and continuity, life that is static, is a lower level of living. The Talmud tells us that there are four people that are considered like they're dead. A blind person, a person that has Saras. That stin disease, that stin ailment that we read about earlier in Leviticus. A person that has no children and someone who is destitute. These people could be very much alive, but they have a degree of dependence upon others and they have a degree of lack of vitality and continuity that they are akin to a pit as opposed to a cistern. And the reason why the soul comes here The reason why we're here. The reason why all of existence, which really boils down to, of course, man. And specifically the soul of man to give it the opportunity to be elevated from a cistern into a spring. How do we unlock that higher level of living? How do we upgrade from a cistern to a spring? The answer is toil in Torah. So if I had to make a pitch, a pitch for this quality, toil in Torah, what would the deck look like? What would the PowerPoint presentation look like? I would say, well, look at Rashi. It tells us that this is the key to gain reward and to avoid punishment of our parsha. And I will quote the Midrash in the Talmud. God covets it. God pleads with us to get it, to do it. It is why we were... Created, it develops our potential, I would quote the Talmud. It's why the soul comes down to this world, I would quote the Shef Shemitah and the Zohar. It elevates us to a higher level of living. It grants us independent life. It takes a cistern and transforms it into a wellspring. It takes a seed and makes it into a fully developed tree. That would, I think, get our attention to say, okay, I'm interested, I'm in, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded. What do I need to do now? I'll tell you, but first I want to explain exactly why toiling in Torah is a different kind of experience of engagement with Torah and why only this higher level achieves all of those incredible goals. The Talmud tells us that Torah is a commodity that can trade hands. Ownership of it can be conveyed to others. It explains the Talmud, quoting a verse. The verse says, about a righteous person, a Torah scholar, In the Torah of God, this person is desirous. And in his Torah, Yehage. Yomam velaila, they will study day and night. So the Talmud points out, this is featured also in the book of Kiddushin, on page thirty-two. The Talmud points out that the verse switches the identity of the owner of Torah from the beginning of the verse to the end of the verse. The beginning of the verse describes someone who is desirous of God's Torah. At the end of the verse, it says, "Ubid Torah, so and in his Torah he studies day and night." says the Talmud. In the beginning, it's God's Torah. And in the end, it's your Torah. Explains Rashi, once you toil in it, once you work really hard in it, the ownership of the Torah is conveyed from God to you. We talk about Torah, that's the tool to develop ourselves, that's the tool to unlock our potential, why is only toil of Torah what does that? Why is this so different than just, you know, generic study of Torah? The answer is that generic study of Torah does not acquire Torah. It's not yours. The method to acquire Torah, to take it from the Torah of God to being your Torah is via toil. That's how you make it yours. That's how you absorb it within you. Now you have possession. You have title of Torah. Studying Torah, of course, is amazing. The best pastime. But it remains the Torah of God. It's not yours. It's not deployed within you completely to fundamentally upgrade you from a seed to a tree, from a cistern to a wellspring. You could study a lot of Torah and still remain a cistern. You've been filled by others. You have the Almighty's Torah within you. You have not quite assimilated the Torah within you, and all that potential of that wellspring, it's still trapped up in that seed. The seed is undeveloped. Your house is still in boxes, needing assembly. To unlock all those blessings... To fulfill the reason why you were created, to partner with God, to finish what he started, to become a wellspring, you need to become the owner of the Torah. It has to become integrated within you. And that is done only with this higher level of Torah, toiling. So now we know why it's so important and we understand the mechanics of why it's different, why this is a different kind of engagement. And it made sense to us, you know, why this would be dead all those blessings and why God is desirous of it. This is really what it's all about. So how do you do it? What precisely does this entail? What is this higher level of engagement, of study, toil in Torah? What is it that unleashes such a dramatic Transformation. The first thing is diligence. Diligence and consistency. In the aforementioned Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page ninety nine B. The verse that it quotes is Lo Yamush Sefer This book of Torah shall never depart from your mouth. If you want ownership of Torah. What does that mean for it to be yours? What does it mean to be yours? It means it's always with you. You don't leave your kidneys behind when you go to Disneyland. It's yours. It accompanies you wherever you go. If you want to layer Torah upon you, to actually have it upgrade you, transform you, develop you, actualize you, it's got to be with you at all times. And thus, Torah toil is not something that you study. It's a nice thing. It's gotta be yours. Ownership. You wanna own it? Okay. Ownership means it's, it's actually with you. You're, you're integrating that within you. I had this memory when I was thinking about this idea. When I had originally arrived to Yeshiva in Israel, so I was 16 years old. As I mentioned in the past, I was like the only American, the only outsider, besides for my, uh, south american roommate you may recall but it was really strange to be there like it was like a culture shock and i remember asking one of my study partners because one of the heads of the yeshiva like he would he would be there in the morning for 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 davening for prayer for and then he would disappear for a couple of hours and come back in the afternoon so i said well what does he do where does he go (laughs) where does he go when he leaves So he looked at me like I I had fallen off the moon. He looked at me like I was just the strangest creature that he had ever seen in his life. He says, he's going to to learn to study Torah. And to me, like, like this was a, this was a big insight. This is an American kid, big baseball fan, long time suffering Mets fan. Like I was into sports and other things. And you go, you go to this elite yeshiva in Israel and you learn that there's a kind of living where people just default to Torah. It's not just something that you do when it's in the calendar. It's on the schedule. We got to do it. If you're not doing something else, you're always defaulting to Torah. That's what we mean when we say toil. It's not just a nice thing that you do. It's not just an occasional pastime. Requirement number one is diligence and consistency. It also entails a degree of pain. You have to fight a battle here. The Maral points out that the verse that Kitch starts our parsha, bechu kosai teilechu, you shall go, you shall walk. He says that this idea of toiling in Torah is not something that you have. You have to go get it. You have to walk towards it. It's not something that is present where you are at the beginning. When you're walking, it means that you're trying to get to a different place. If you wanted to stay there, you wouldn't need to walk. People in antiquity didn't know of the concept of a treadmill. If you're walking, it means you're trying to get someplace. You're trying to achieve something that's not just built in when you begin life. And therefore, it means that uh, toil demands a degree of hard work because you're going against the inborn instinct. Course, we know what that's called the Eitzahara, bad character, our desire for cheap thrills, empty calorie pleasures. We face stiff headwinds to overcome that and to unlock this great gift to toil in Torah. So it's not going to be easy. Number three so we have diligence and consistency and an understanding that this requires us to overcome our inborn instinct. And then the morale says something very deep. Another way to understand that you're walking with Torah, it's not just when you are walking for other things, you're taking Torah with you. It means that you're walking through the Torah. You take the words of Torah and you walk with them. Now, what he's referring to is a very deep point. There's a lot of Torah. You know, I'm in the Torah Center right now and I'm looking at our library and it's pretty full. There's a lot of books there. And this is just, you know, what fit into the room. The actual library is just vast and enormous. There's tons of Torah to study. But even then, what, what do you do when you finish studying. So you move on to the next page, you know, one page, one book. If you have had the great fortune of finishing a book of Talmud, well, now it's time to begin the next book of Talmud. What about the Talmud that you just finished? What about the citation that you just read? To walk in Torah explains the Maharal. To toil in Torah, it means not just study Torah and move on, hit and run. It means to take the ideas of Torah and to have them accompany you throughout your life. And as you advance in life, you're actually advancing vertically, deeper and deeper into what you have studied. And you're using the words of Torah to deeply connect within you and to develop and build your identity out of those ideas. And he explains that the Torah idea Starts off as like an idea, it's a kernel. But you can travel vertically within that one idea and it can be what you build your entire life on. My grandfather said a story. He said that someone was once talking with the great altar of Slabatra, the great visionary of Slabatra. And they were talking about another person Another great Torah giant, and they said that other person, really, if you take all of his teachings and all of his insights, you could boil them down to fifteen different ideas. And the altar of Sabatka, who was someone that was an, an overflowing wellspring of Torah, who would was always speaking and would say incredible discourses and lectures on every imaginable subject in a way that would land a punch, that would pack a punch, and it would really be transformational for the listeners. He said, wait a minute, come to think of it, all of my Torah is really based upon three core pillars, three ideas, three foundational principles. The Torah, of course, is, is vast, but it's interconnected. It's interdependent on each other. And when you find these ideas in Torah, and you go deeper and deeper, and you're walking deeper and deeper into them, and they kind of become the basis, the pillars upon which you're building your spiritual edifice. You're deepening your connection to it. You're deepening the concretization of those connections that you're having with Torah. And slowly, you are melding and fusing man with Torah. So we talk about toiling in Torah, we are referring to connecting to Torah on such a deep level that it it just grates away, it just removes all the mediocrity and all the nonsense and all the superficiality that we have within us. And the Torah that we walk with, and the Torah that becomes part of us and melds with us and fuses with us, this is what spurs the growth and the development Of your life's tree and when the Torah becomes part of you it acts as the water and the dew to develop that seed that you started with this is why you are here this is what God desires from you this is what unlocks all those blessings this is what develops your potential And it's not an easy thing to do. You have to start small. You start and you're you're a cistern here as well. The soul was a cistern in heaven. It's a cistern here too. You have to learn from others. You start off as an outsider. And you're filling up, so to speak, your cistern with more and more water, picking up pieces here and there, learning from others. But gradually the goal is to connect with Torah on such a deep level that you begin to sprout on your own. And if we engage with Torah on this high level with tenacity and consistency and we're probing it to its depths and we're becoming one with Torah and we're doing that final mile of creation that God created the world, for us to finish it, we're partnering with God to develop and actualize the great potential that he gave us. We're connecting with Torah on this fundamental level. That begins this process of transformation and change. This is what God covets. This is why our soul needs to come here. That kind of engagement with Torah is the key to unlocking all the blessings and avoiding all the curses of our parsha. May we all be so fortunate to assemble our kit. To plant and cultivate our seed and actualize the great potential that we are destined to achieve. Okay, let's get to this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready? Are you still there? Are you listening? Our Parsha has an unusual segue. You know, we think of Parsha's Bechukrosai as being the admonishment, but that's just one chapter. And then the final chapter it talks about all these other things about tithing and about evaluations of people. And it seems like an odd way to end the book, but also an odd way to kind of leave the admonishment and the castigation and the reprimandation of this. If you listen and if you observe, you'll have blessing. And if you don't, and if you don't toil in Torah and to run, you just live a very superficial life, then you'll suffer the consequences. After the fierce and biting and terrifying admonition, the parasha transitions to the laws of evaluating people. What that means is, if you commit to dedicate the value of a person to the temple's coffers, that's like your pledge. I'm pledging to give the value of this person. How much are you required to give to the temple coffers? You have to evaluate The person, how much are they worth in a monetary sense? And then you know how much the person who made that pledge is obligated to pay. it's a very unusual transition. What is the meaning behind this strange segue? Why is there a juxtaposition of the value of people and the fierce admonishment in our Parsha? So the great Chose of Lublin, one of the great Hasidic masters, said something very powerful and helpful, I think. The Torah was worried that after reading all about this terrible admonition, people's spirits will be broken. People will be liable to lapse into melancholy and depression. And people begin to fail to see their value. And they'll say, I'm so worthless. I'm a good for nothing. I have no value. I'm a total zero. So right afterwards, we have the laws of arachin, of valuing a person, to instruct us, to tell us that there is no person in the world that doesn't have value. And a person should never say, I'm worthless. Because the Almighty loves us all. Like a parent loves their only child. No matter how much we are battered, no matter how much we are bruised and pummeled and pilloried, we must never forget the eternal value that we all possess. Sometimes things aren't great. Sometimes we have to suffer the wrath of the divine and it makes no sense to us. And we're so beaten down and broken. And we may feel an urge or may feel a tendency to say, ah, life doesn't matter. Life is useless. I'm useless. I'm valueless. I'm worthless. Whenever that, God forbid, that's that terrible feeling enters a person, you have to always remember the incredible and eternal and everlasting value that you have within you. Never forget that lesson. We all have our ups and downs. There's no one who lives a carefree, blunder-free, bump-free, obstacle-free life. The nature of life is that we have our ebbs and flows and ups and downs. Days of love and days of hatred and depression. That's part of the human experience. And God forbid if we find ourselves in one of those places, one of those nadirs, remember, I have value. I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I come from the choicest of humans to grace the Almighty's world. I have potential. I have greatness. There are things that the Almighty wants me to do. The world was created for me. I have value. I hope you enjoyed. What a delight. We get to study Torah together from the Torah Center in Houston, Texas. This was really enjoyable. Send me an email. Reach out. RabbiWolbyGmail.com Let's become friends. Tell me if you liked the podcast or if you didn't. Tell me your story. Ask what's going on here at the Torch Center. Reach out. Find out how I'm doing. Let me hear how you're doing. RabbiWolby at gmail.com Have an incredible day. A fantastic rest of your week. And a restful, invigorating uplifting, transformational Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week when we begin the book of Numbers, the book of Bamidbar with the help of the Almighty.